Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's March the 20th, 2023, a Monday. March is not just March Madness, but Women's History Month, and we've been very being very good and um, and celebrating it with everybody else. Uh, some people are celebrating it in a in a very virtuous way, talking about women making strides in a new era. And we had last week a woman called Elizabeth Armstrong on the show, a historian of feminism on a consequential anti-colonial feminist conference that none of us have ever heard of in Beijing. That was pretty interesting. Her book was called Bury the Corpse of Colonialism. But we've been burying other corpses this month, too, um, in honor of Women's uh, Month, History Month. Uh, we did a show with the historian Patty McCracken, who has a fascinating new book. And I keep on referring to this, The Angel Makers. It's about some Hungarian women who poisoned 160 men, their husbands and sons and lovers who were misbehaved after the First World War in a small town in Hungary, 60 miles from Budapest. So we've been having a rather murderous time on Women's, uh, uh, Women's History Month, and we are continuing with that theme today with my guest, Ren De Stefano, who has a new novel out, How I'll Kill You, a book about how women kill men. And it's a wonderful book. Uh, wonderful on lots of levels, Ren. Have you ever fantasized about killing men? Or is this just come out in your fiction? So I want to be clear, it's not a guidebook. <laughs> so I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't say it was a fantasy so much, but more a curiosity. And it's so interesting you mentioned The Angel Maker because that's definitely on my TV red list. I find it really interesting, the psychology behind why anybody kills and then also why women in particular kill and often in very different ways than their male counterparts. So what's the difference, Ren? I, I know it's hard to generalize about why all men or all women kill, but do men and women broadly, do you think, kill in different ways? I, I believe that statistically women are more likely to poison. And is that because they're cleverer, I think uh, more acidic, so to speak, or, or just um, less strong so they don't go around stabbing or strangling people? I think if I were to play armchair psychologist, it might be more practical. So less of a mess to clean up, um, less physical strength may be required in the moment, maybe not having to sit there and watch as it's going down. Um, but I, I do remember, I, I believe it was in the late 1980s, where the actual reason that there's the privacy or the protection label on aspirin and medication is because a woman put cyanide in her husband's aspirin bottle, but she also chose to poison a few other bottles to make it look like a factory defect. And that was one of the biggest cases and one of the first cases I heard about a woman poisoning her husband. Yeah, and that's, um, that's what Patty McCracken's subjects got up to. There was yeah. a a central poisoner in this Hungarian village who did all the poisoning on behalf of these women. Let's get to your 
fiction, how I'll kill you. Um, mm. How does the killing happen? Are they, is it poison again? So it's sort of a variety. We have three different characters. They are identical triplets and three very different personality types because they grew up apart from each other in a very tumultuous foster system here in the United States. And one of the sisters who is very emotional and impulsive, and she tends to kill her, her partners in a very violent way. And another sister is more practical and cool and collected and just cold as ice and prefers a garrote often with her yarn from her knitting. And the third sister, she is the one who runs the cleanup. So she's the one, no matter what they do, whatever kind of mess they leave her with, she finds a way to make sure that there is no evidence left. How did these three sisters, uh, and I don't want to give away the plot of the book because it's just about to come out. I don't know quite how you've done it, but you've already got 147 ratings or 145 ratings on uh, Goodreads, even though the book hasn't come out. I hope you didn't kill all the ratings. Or you said, <laughs> there's, uh, It's mostly four stars. I wonder whether anyone who gave it less than five got murdered somehow. But um, uh, I don't want to give away the whole plot. But how did these three sisters, how did the subject of murder ever come up in the first place? In in my writing or more for the characters? Well, for the both, but particularly for the characters. How did these women, you said they, they grew up, these are fictional characters, of course. Of course, yeah. They grew up um, in rather unfortunate circumstances. But who first brought up the idea of them killing men? So without giving too much away, it's... Yeah, I don't want to give you... I certainly don't want to give everything away. Sure. They, they grew up in a very powerless situation. They were always... They had no control over where they were living, how people treated them. They really didn't have anything in terms of resources or money. And when they were young adults, um, one of them decided, I want to have a nice life for myself. And she picked a married man, um, which was a mistake. And the relationship went sour and one thing led to another. And it, it, it's sort of that she fell into, you could say accidentally or impulsively, killing this one and the others helping her to, to clean it up. And it became a pact of, you know, a, a, a conventional life, a nuclear family, it's probably not for us. Everyone we love is going to hurt us. So why don't we have a little bit of fun, play around, and then destroy the evidence afterwards? So you say, uh, Ren, one thing led to another. I mean, that thing has to be pretty significant to go from perhaps irritation or antipathy to murder, doesn't it? Yeah, I think for a lot of people, you might say... Um, having a partner who cheats on you or getting into a relationship with a married person who promises to leave their spouse and never does. A lot of these things are par for the course. They hurt. You find a way to move on. But for these three sisters, I think after having so much heartache and so much disappointment and anger, it just became a last straw situation. And it was a definite overreaction, which which does come up in conversation now and again for them. And they're uh, coming back to our earlier conversation about how women kill, they're, they're poisoners, I assume. There's a little bit of everything. Um, it's So the, the two of the sisters, they have been doing the killing in a variety of ways, um, sometimes violently, sometimes quietly. And we're on to the third sister now who has done the cleanup. And it's her turn to kind of cut her teeth 
and have her first kill. So what she does is she finds a man to kind of reel in and, and start the process. And throughout her time with this man, she's debating and kind of fantasizing a bit. How will I do this? I could poison him. I can make it look like a break in all these sorts of different options. Um, and so I don't want to, I don't want to give too, too much away, but she does entertain a bit of everything. Speaking uh, during Women's History Month, do you think there is something, at least in theory, empowering about murder? When when women uh, when I was going to say when women marry men, that would have been a Freudian slip. When <laughs> women murder men, I think there, there's probably a lot of complex reasons. I think for a lot of people, murder is about control, but you have to look at it more broadly and say, well, if I murder this person, maybe I'm in control of this dynamic or I'm, I'm paying you back for some way you've wronged me. But now the rest of your life is kind of beholden to whatever the consequences may be. So there's either I get caught and now I face the legal ramifications and also the societal stigma, right? You can't control at that point what people will say about you, what will be written about you in the papers or I get away with it, but my whole life I'm going to be looking over my shoulder, right? You, uh, you, you this is your first novel, uh, Ren, but there is another Lauren Stefano who writes children's books. Many people, many of our listeners will be familiar with your uh, 2011 young adult dystopian novel, uh, Wither. Was it hard to go from being a, a young adult dystopian writer to being uh, a, uh, a a crime novelist? How did you do that? It was very difficult, yeah. So I, I came into young adult when I was a young adult myself. I was in my early 20s. And I thought, well, here I am. I'm in publishing. I'm connected now. I'll be able to write anything I want and people will want to buy it. But it, that, that was obviously not the reality. And in my time writing books for children, I began to think I'd really like to write an adult book. I just don't know what yet. And then as time passed by and, and the rise of true crime podcasts and realizing how much time I spend listening to them, I thought, you know, I'd really like to write a book in this world, fictionalized, not necessarily based on a true case. And I, I began trying to find my voice and I realized there are so many different types of thrillers. You've got the really gritty cop dramas. You've got the small town murder. You've got the sort of romantic couples that kill. There's so many different avenues to take. And from the time I decided that this is something I wanted to do to the time that I finally wrote something I was feeling good about, which ended up being this book, was about, about five years. Your bio acknowledges that you, uh, when, you're, when you're not writing thrillers, you're listening to true crime podcasts. Mm -hmm. uh, you're also crocheting your way to too many blankets, which suggests that there, you may have some murderous instincts within you. But... Um, <laughs> The, this is this obsession with true crime podcasts uh, and shows and, and books. We did a we've done a number of shows about true crime. One with Joe Pompeo. Mm -hmm. He has a, a wonderful book, Blood and Ink, uh, about a, a 1922 murder just down the road from you in uh, in New Jersey. What is it about true crime that you find so compelling, or perhaps Ren even addicted? I think it's the stories what what would compel somebody to do something like this is it an act of just extreme you're extreme you feel extremely wronged it's an extremely emotional experience 
or is it something to do with the killer themselves where they just have an inherent maybe lack of empathy, lack of humanity, and they're bored, right? There's a lot of, and I don't know if the answer is always black and white, but what I've noticed about true crime is the scariest cases are usually the ones where somebody commits a heinous crime and then the neighbors and the friends and the boss and whomever might come out and say, they seemed like such a nice person. I, I never would have seen this coming. And I guess it's it's true because when we're children, we're taught you avoid kind of shadows. You, you look over your shoulder at night. You stay in the street lamps if you can. But it really could be anyone. And there's maybe a bit of power. And I don't know whether it's false power or not. But in in believing that if we know these stories, maybe we can keep ourselves safe and be a little bit more cautious. One of my favorite writers, and I think a lot of other people's favorite writers about crime, fictional crime, is Patricia Highsmith. Mm-hmm. Of course, her great invention was the Mr. Ripley, talented mm-hmm. Mr. Ripley, who, who seemed um, to have no moral qualms about murder. Highsmith was a rather odd character herself. Do you think it takes someone slightly odd? quirky, bizarre, perhaps personally, sexually or otherwise, to write well about crime? No, um, I think it. you can be fearful and observant about things. And I think you can have a, a pretty vivid imagination about things that you yourself can't conceive of happening, which is what makes it so scary. When I think about when I was a child um, on the news, it was always a little girl's been kidnapped today. You know, there was there were so many stories like that. And I wanted to know the stories of these little girls. I wanted to know what they were doing. And if there was anything I could possibly do to avoid that situation for myself a lot of the time. Um, And it's, I I think that there's there's a lot to be said about if your imagination really runs wild about something because you just desperately don't want it to happen, that you might have a lot to say in that space. Are there particular fictional crime writers that you are in awe of that you're trying to emulate in uh, in in uh, in how I'll kill you so i definitely i wouldn't want to emulate anybody um but when i or kill I, them maybe no killing <laughs> no kill. i've never i've never entertained the thought actually it's interesting um sometimes you think about when some somebody's made your life maybe especially difficult oh i wish we were on different planets um but i I, I really, I've always loved any kind of thriller or scary story, even when I was little. And I guess one of the the first, if you want to call it a serial killer story I read, was It by Stephen King. Because not only are we dealing with a serial killer, but he's a clown who lives in the sewer. Um, which, even though it's it sounds a little bit um, implausible on its face, it's it's still really terrifying. And it plays into that thought of anything could happen. Um, and usually anything could be anywhere. We've done some shows recently on horror books. Um, one with last week with the uh, Mexican American writer Leopoldo Gout, who has a new book out, uh, Pinata. It's a book that's designed, I guess, horror horror and fiction is designed to scare people. What do you think your kind of crime book is designed to do? I mean, obviously entertain. You want people to read it and finish it. Mm-hmm. But are you in the business of scaring people, of getting them to think about the the moral implications of murder, 
um, or, or simply just to give your readers fun? It's really, it's about wondering what's going to happen next. I, I really hesitate to, to imply any sort of moral message, um, in, especially in this book, because our main character is a serial killer, right? So technically, just by virtue of her being the protagonist, she's the person that you're rooting for. And if she fails, that actually means that law and justice prevailed, right? So what I really wanted to do with this book is take a look into the mind of a serial killer, um, what makes them do what they do? Why is it that some of them are never suspected? What are they doing to make themselves look so interesting and so benign to their community so that nobody would suspect them and be shocked when it turns out to be them? And also, I, I'm hoping, and the, a lot of the reception I've gotten thus far is that the romance aspect was really unexpected because it's not, she's not lurking in the shadows. She's not kind of creeping around you know, in, in the alleyways, she's really trying to be this charming persona that would make people fall in love with her. Yeah, and I don't think it would be giving away too much, Ren, to explain to our viewers and listeners that um, one of the, the key moments in the narrative is that the woman, the, the serial killer, who's the central character in the book, one of the sisters, uh, falls in love, mm -hmm. uh, which puts a, a spanner, so to speak, in 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 the system. Can you fall in love and also kill? Isn't love and hate, love and death, uh, aren't they intimately bound up with one another? Yeah, I think that's the question too. Because when you think about a lot of people who kill their spouses or serial killers, if it if it was a crime of passion, it could be argued that it was never intended. It was a really horrible decision made that they regret. But in other cases, you might say that it was an act all along and that it was inevitable that this would just end up this way. Do you think in a way, I mean, obviously it's a novel, so it's fictional, but do you think in a way you're normalizing your serial killer, your female serial killer, by suggesting that even she can fall in love? I think, you know, it, it would take... You'd have to take a look at the entire book and, and see kind of the ups and downs she goes through. But that was part of what I wanted to explore. Because when you think of a serial killer, they most of the time, not always, but most of the time they're flying solo because they really do want to have that persona. They want to be seen as good or, or maybe just unremarkable in the daylight. And then they want to get away with their crimes and they don't want to share that with another person. But in her case, she's going along with her two sisters who she's tried to stay with for her entire life. And there's a lot of complicated elements where you could say that she's doing this as an act of love for them and care for them. And she's never given her own wants or needs a thought. And so when she begins this process of trying to find and kill a person, you know, she wants to charm this person first. And she finds herself realizing I've never entertained the idea of having anything like this for myself. I've never entertained the idea of falling in love or playing house or, you know, having this pretend life with somebody. And she is surprised by the feelings that she does evoke there. So in a sense, murder is a kind of liberation. There's a Dostoevsky aspect. I mean, maybe it's not quite Dostoevsky, but uh, murder is freeing her or enabling her to realize herself. 
you could say that. Yeah, they're, they're, the three sisters all have a very different relationship with murder behind their motivations and what they're doing with their partners. And they all are trying to see it as a way of, of taking control over their circumstances. And um, all, all three sisters, do they all have partners? They all, so they take turns. They, they sort of alternate. So one will have a partner for a while. The other two will wait in the wings for their turn and they'll help with the cleanup. So all the mer all, all the partners end up dead. All, all 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 the partners they're burying the corpse. Do they show up to the funerals in tears? No, they leave. They skip down. <laughs> it's they're fake never... fake aliases, um, low profile. We're gone before the body is found. Ren, you said that you and 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 in your bio you reflect this too that you're a you're a true crime uh, addict. Are there any examples of twins or triplets, male or female, who, who, who collaborate in mass murder? I can't think of any, no. I, I've, I've thought about some cases that I've heard of where siblings um, end up turning on another sibling or even turning on each other. But I have not found a story of siblings or twins that work together. What advice would you give any any triplets listening who are rather intrigued by your your narrative and would like to to go into the murder business with one or two of their 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 siblings? We'll read the end of the book and see how it turns out before you consider that career. Because um, I, I would say it's it's a bit inevitable that it's... yeah, they probably get. I, I'm guessing that it doesn't end well. There's really no way for it to end well because it's either kill or kill, be killed in this type of story. So th there was, I, I tried because I, you do find a fondness and an attachment for your characters and you, you want them to have a happy ending, but there was just honestly, any way you slice it, just a very, very difficult feat. So the, the serial killer at the heart of the book, she's, she's, a is she attractive physically? What does she look like? Yeah, they do. They, you know, they try to keep themselves very fit because they are doing some arduous work getting rid of bodies. Um, and they, they're very unassuming. Just they look like pretty much average 25 year old women just, you know, going to church and living their lives and, and being kind and not making a lot of waves. They, they make themselves as appealing as possible. So that woman you stood next to in church yesterday or in the supermarket the day before, she might be a mass murderer. Yeah, and there, there's a line to that effect that it could be the man in the three-piece suit who holds the door open for you. It could be that woman pushing a, a baby carriage. It could be that, that CEO breezing down the street on a phone call. It could be anybody. Does that occur to you sometimes when you're walking down the street? All the time. All the time. Yeah. If, a, if I'm driving, I, I live on a bit of a remote road where there's not a lot of traffic. This is near, near New Haven. In, uh, in yes, near New Haven. Yeah. And I live pretty far out where the only people that come by live in the area. And if there's a car that's been behind me for a while, I'll pass my driveway <laughs> just in, just in case. So you suspect everyone of potentially to, being to some degree, you know, to some degree, you can't live your life thinking everyone's out to get you, but it's more, don't be, don't be taken by surprise too, too much. Yeah. Well, I hope you survive. Um, I hope we all do. Yeah. Uh, Ren, one of the things that occurs to me, I mean, again, yours is a piece of fiction, so obviously you made it up, but um, isn't the more likely scenario that the 
the sisters turn on each other aren't most murders family murders i mean that's always the the cliche you hear you know a lot more about these things than me yeah, they talked a bit about that in the in the book too. It's acknowledged that you're you're more likely to be killed by somebody you know, so a partner, a family member, a, cl a close friend. And I'm not sure why this is, but most domestic murders seem to take place either in the kitchen or the bedroom. Not, in, I'm not entirely sure why that is. Maybe because they're gathering spaces, or maybe somebody's running in there to get the knife. But the reason I wanted to explore triplets is because you have the idea of two's company, three's a crowd. And if you have three people, even if they're all very close, even if they're family, it's almost inevitable that two of them will have a closer relationship than the third and that this dynamic might shift from person to person. So there's always the fear that the other two are conspiring against her throughout the story. What, what became or, or what will become of these girls' parents? So they were orphaned and they never knew their parents and that was a big part of it too is when they were abandoned it's not every day that triplets are found abandoned and so they were a media sensation as as very young children and they received a lot of donations which is how they're able to fund the life that they have off the grid but um as they grew up they were wards of the state and so they became just like anybody else in that situation just living a very rough kind of difficult life void of any control and that really that really shaped their different personalities. Were you I'm guessing you must have been in some way or other inspired. I can't remember the names of the three boys who were themselves uh, adopted. Um, I think they're from New York City, three boys, three triplets who were given to three different families. And somehow they reconnected. One met another at college. They looked identical. Um, and it's a very, a movie was made about, I can't remember the name of the movie, but, uh, I've seen it. Are you familiar with that story? It, it's ringing a bell. I don't, I don't know all the specifics, but I believe they weren't told that. No, they weren't told they were separated because the authorities or the, the psychiatric authorities wanted to run a test to see whether, uh, biology trumped culture and whether they would all turn out to be. Mm -hmm. So they kept tabs on these boys. It was a very cruel experiment. Yeah, I, I remember. I do remember hearing about that. And I believe it was probably the early 1900s. No, it wasn't the early. It was, 90, it was the 1980s or 1990s that, the, yeah. that these boys grew up. They're similar um, ages to myself. So they were born in the 1960s. And the, the tragic outcome was that one of the they re all reconnected. They became minor celebrities. They opened a restaurant, which wasn't very successful. And one of the boys ended up killing themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it, I think it's a, that's a horrible thing to do. I think it's horrible to run any kind of social experiment on an unconsenting infant. And I, I also think nobody could have predicted. I know this. They came about in the 1980s. That's when they found each other. But nowadays, too, um, if we were to do anything like that, like nobody could have predicted the rise of social media and the internet and all these kind of 23andMe DNA tests everyone's doing. And it's just inevitable that the, the truth is going to come out. And I think that really, that really has a way of devastating the lives of those impacted. And that's just, you know, absolutely, that's an awful, it's an awful thing to do to a human being. If they're triplets and identical triplets, um, who, who knows who does what? Are they continually 
switching identities. Yeah, that's and that's a big part of why they go together everywhere. So one can be out and be an alibi. So say one is committing murder, the other one's on a surveillance camera just at a, a restaurant or something like that to make sure that there's always um, an alibi and that where they are, nobody knows there's more than one of them. Are there any police in this book? No, it's it's a pretty small town, and that and that's a big part of it too. We're living in the age of security cameras and GPS, and you know it's it's hard to do anything without somebody finding you. I've I've heard of cases where people are implicated in crimes because the the flashlight on their smartphone was active for a very suspicious amount of time at three a.m. So everything is taken into consideration. We want to make sure we don't get caught. We find a town where people don't lock their doors. Ren, this book, as you suggested, was hard to write. It took you, what, five or six years? Um, are you going to do another one? What did you learn from, from writing this uh, fiction? What, 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 what advice would you give others who want to do crime fiction? So my advice for others is try to find your voice. There's a lot of different ways to tell a story. And I tried a lot of things that just didn't work because I think I was trying too hard to emulate other other successful books. And the number one piece of advice that I would give is just don't be afraid to to write down your weird idea. It's it's not too strange to at least get on paper and entertain and, and see if you've got something. Because that's what I had to do on paper. If I pitched that I have an idea for triplet serial killers, I'm going to get laughed out the gate. Um, so I think it, it took me believing in the idea enough to sit down and write it to get to the, the finished product. And did you write it before selling it or did you sell it before writing it? I wrote it before selling it. Yeah. Um, and I kind of, I suspected after the first chapter or two that it wasn't as ludicrous of an idea as I initially worried it might be. And that I thought I could really realistically tell this whole story. Did you ever want to murder your editor? No. <laughs> and have you got more books in the pipeline, more murder, Lauren? I would really like to. I'd, I'd really like to write more books about very um, unexpected killers. Meaning people you would never imagine. Yeah. So like the perfect neighbors, the perfect spouse. Yeah. People you would never see coming. And uh, so you, you, you haven't written anything yet. I'm, I'm playing with some ideas, but it's, it's a slow process.